Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will thus see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing round them, this fellow's one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept.
very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the man you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. And we pray that our hearts may be open today to receive your living and active word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So in our series in Mark's Gospel, we have today reached the point where with Jesus having been arrested, is put on trial. And the first thing we note is the envy and hostility of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jews. Its members were chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law, with a high priest presiding over them. And although the occupying Roman authorities allowed them many powers, they could not impose the death penalty. Last week, we heard how members of the Sanhedrin sent a crowd to arrest Jesus, and now here, they bring him before Caiaphas, the high priest. Why was the Sanhedrin so opposed to Jesus? Pilate got it right, verse 10. He knew it was out of envy, self-interest, that they'd brought Jesus to him because Jesus was undermining their authority and was becoming a rival center of spiritual power. 
Ordinary people knew he was different from other religious teachers. He taught with unusual authority. He knew what he was speaking about. Do you ever find that? A real expert doesn't have to say, I'm an expert. You know he is. And he had power over nature, calming a storm, over disease. He performed many healings, and over death itself, raising Lazarus and others from the dead. As a result, he was very popular. So we read verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. And the Sanhedrin were ruthless, ruthless in dealing with him. And they broke all their own rules and regulations to ensure a conviction. They were not supposed to meet at night. They did. The testimony of witnesses had to agree. It did not. If a verdict of death was passed, a night had to elapse so the Sanhedrin could reflect on whether mercy was more appropriate. No time elapsed. And finally, the high priest asked a leading question where the accused might incriminate himself. And this was strictly forbidden. That leading question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And that was met with a direct reply from Jesus, quoting the prophecy from Daniel. I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This was blasphemy in the eyes of the Sanhedrin because it couldn't possibly be true. And so began for Jesus the terrible physical torture and humiliation. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. But this was not enough for the Sanhedrin. Their problem was that the Romans would not be interested in a charge of blasphemy as it was a religious matter. That was their affair. Only Pilate had the power of life and death. And it meant they'd have to change the charge to become a political one. So we read, 15 verse 1, how very early the next morning they reached a decision. They would accuse Jesus of treason rather than blasphemy. And from the other Gospels, we know the many things in verse 3, included being a troublemaker, one who forbade payment of Caesar's taxes, very serious, even more serious, one who claimed to be an earthly ruler, a rival political leader. And Jesus did say to Pilate that he was the king of the Jews, but he was speaking of a heavenly, not an earthly kingdom. And as we know, the Sanhedrin achieved their object of having Jesus killed. And they must have felt triumphant, a problem eliminated. Little did they realize that the one they'd put to death was in fact the true victor. For death could not hold him. And by rising from the dead, Jesus opened the way for all who trust in him, 
to experience that same victory over death. We need not fear death because we have hope, a certainty. That's why a Christian funeral is so different. And, of course, experience the glories of eternal life in all its fullness, living in the presence of our Heavenly Father forever. Secondly, Jesus had to contend with the weak leadership of Pilate. Now, Palestine was a troubled and difficult province to rule. It had many problems, so it needed firm but wise leadership. It was vital to the Romans that it was governed well because it was the land bridge between Egypt and Syria. Historians tell us Pilate took over as procurator in AD 26. He had full control of the military or the administration of the province, including the taxes. But if he exceeded his duties, the people of his province could report him directly to the emperor. And from the outset, Pilate seemed to have a lack of sympathy, even contempt for the Jews. And this led to some serious errors of judgment. Historians tell us about three incidents that occurred during this period. The first incident was on Pilate's initial visit to Jerusalem. Now, his soldiers carried standards, which had an image of the emperor, regarded as a god, fixed on the top. And to the Jews, this was a graven image and strictly forbidden. Previous Roman governors, aware of the sensitivities, removed the figure of the emperor when they were in Jerusalem. Pilate was different. He refused to do this, eventually, in the face of process, had to back down. Secondly, he used money from the temple treasury to finance an aqueduct. There was a riot. Many Jews were clubbed or stabbed to death. And finally, and most seriously, he fixed votive shields designed to honor the emperor on the walls of Herod's palace in Jerusalem. This again enraged the people who reported Pilate to Tiberius the emperor, and the emperor ordered Pilate to remove them. Pilate had, if you like, in football terms, been given a yellow card by the emperor. This was not a good thing to receive, and definitely not a vote of confidence by the emperor. And so, Pilate was vulnerable. And it was that vulnerability that was exploited by the Sanhedrin. So chapter 18 and 19 of John's Gospel provides further evidence of this power struggle between Pilate and the Sanhedrin. As Pilate prevaricates, they cried out, if you let this man, Jesus, go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Do you hear the implicit threat? You fail to deal with Jesus, and we will report you to Caesar. That would be a red card, and the end of his career, or worse. So Pilate, albeit reluctantly, 
gave in to the blackmail. A weak leader afraid to protect an innocent man. And then Mark 15 tells us how it was the custom at the Passover to release a prisoner whom the, the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison, in prison for murder. Pilate, eager to get out of his difficulty, suggested that Jesus could be released. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have Barabbas released instead, and Pilate, knowing that Jesus was innocent, asked what they wanted him to do with Jesus. Crucify him. A death reserved for the most and worst criminals. And Pilate gave in, and note this, he wanted to satisfy the crowd. And we could almost overlook the few words at the end, at verse 15. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We rightly emphasize the unique agony of the cross when Jesus was forsaken by his father. That was the spiritual agony of carrying the sin of the whole world. But let's not gloss over the physical pain, the flogging. This involved a whip made of strips of leather with bone and lead at the ends, and unlimited flogging meant that victims often did not survive. And then there was the crucifixion. So Pilate allowed a man he knew to be innocent to go to a terrible death. It was the fear of the crowd, the fear of his Roman superiors, the fear of the Sanhedrin which drove him. Sometimes it's asked how could the crowd be so changeable in their attitude to Jesus, one minute welcoming him to Jerusalem, then a week later, shouting for his crucifixion. The suggestion by several commentators is that there were two different crowds. The first crowd, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, was made up of pious pilgrims, no doubt many from Galilee, an equally pious group also from Jerusalem, which met him. The second crowd at the trial must have included followers and servants of the high priest, seeing as they'd moved from the high priest's residence straight to Pilate's palace. And it's this second group, a small section from the Jerusalem crowd, who were stirred by the chief priest to call for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. And then thirdly, finally, Jesus faced being disowned by his close friend, Peter. In Mark 14, Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crowed twice. And despite Peter's protestations, that is exactly what happened. Jesus knew him inside out. Servant girl, a servant girl, accused him twice of being with Jesus. And a little later, some of those standing near said Peter was one of those followers. Three times Peter denied even knowing him. 
And his reaction was strong in the face of this questioning, calling down curses on himself, swearing he did not know Jesus. What do you do when someone says, are you one of those Bible people? A Christian? You take it seriously. You go to church. And then the cock crowed a second time. Peter broke down and wept. And commentator Alan Cole describes how Peter's downfall came about. Over these chapters, it begins with his scorn of others. They might deny Jesus, but he would not. Then his panic and flight when Jesus was arrested, and finally, his following at a distance. And some make excuses for Peter, but Paul, uh, Cole goes on to say this, unless we see the seriousness of his sin, we cannot understand the bitterness of his remorse, nor the depth of his repentance. The bitterness of his remorse and the depth of his repentance. Nor, as we see later after the resurrection, when Jesus recommissions him, the grace of his restoration. The grace of his restoration. Peter, just like the Sanhedrin, just like Pilate, was affected by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. And which of us has not been afflicted by that same fear of man? Now, there's an important point to note in passing about the reliability of Scripture. What leader would not attempt to ensure archives and records would show him in a good light. Yet Peter, the rock on which the young church was built, had his moment of complete failure recorded forever and forever. We've heard it today. And there's only one source from which this story could have come, which is Peter himself. And it's widely accepted that Mark's gospel was Peter's preaching material. Peter must have told the story of his own denial. He did not varnish the truth. He didn't alter it to make it my truth. He wanted the truth to be known. And so the authority and reliability of Scripture are demonstrated by Peter's failure being recorded and preserved for all time. And the current unrest in the Church of England, which causes me great grief, is due to an attempt to reinterpret Scripture to fit in with contemporary culture. It's as if we're saying, well, we know better than God. And people act as if there are no consequences flowing from such a reinterpretation of Scripture. But we ignore our Maker's instructions at our peril. Chuck Yeager was an American test pilot who first broke the sound barrier. And he once spoke about testing a new jet fighter, which for no apparent reason kept crashing. 
and in all, four pilots were killed. After those incidents, uh, Jaeger took a plane up himself, and he discovered that one of the ailerons, somebody must tell me what an aileron is, an aileron's locked when he took the plane in a row. And inspectors examined the aircraft's wings and found a bolt in the aileron control was wrongly installed. A team was set, uh, sent to the aircraft factory to discover what had gone wrong. And they discovered a long-time worker on the assembly line who ignored the instructions about inserting that bolt because he knew that bolts were supposed to be placed head up and not head down. Nobody told him how many pilots he had killed. For humanity, failure to follow the maker's instructions is equally fatal. It leads to eternal separation from our Heavenly Father, who made us, who designed us, to live with him forever. Because he loves us. Now, I think there are two wonderful lessons from this passage. Here's the first one. It's the amazing, undiminished love of the Father and the Son in allowing Jesus to go through all this suffering for you and me. Betrayal, hatred, malice, torture. It's so easy. The account is familiar to take it all for granted. But as we share in the Lord's Supper shortly, let us ask God to show us again what it cost him and so be filled with thanksgiving that such love could be directed to you and me. You are loved that much. And the second is the glorious grace the Father shows to all who have sinned. Peter, we know, was wonderfully restored and recommissioned by Jesus. He went on to become one of the great leaders of the church, fearless and mightily used by God. And we should be conscious of that grace every day, which, of course, Satan will try to make us go back over our failures and sins. He runs it again and again. He never lets us forget. And the way to counterattack that is with the truth of God's gracious forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Jonathan's hymn had it all. It says it all. And perhaps there's some here this morning who feel like Peter did. You've let God down badly. And you're tempted to feel that he couldn't possibly forgive you because you can hardly forgive yourself. Learn from Peter. Face up to your failure, confess it, and take hold of that wonderful promise in John's first letter. Do you remember it? If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It defeats Satan every time. Amazing love. Amazing grace. What a great God we have.
moment of silence as we listen to God's voice to us. Amazing love, amazing grace. What a great God you are. We praise and thank you this morning, Lord. And forgive us that we take it so much for granted. Change us, Lord, even today. Amen.